welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. Today is the second in, uh, actually I'm just going to move this around. Uh, today is going to be the second in a two. We can start the recording now. <laughs> uh, yeah, today is going to be the second in a uh, three-part series that we are uh, doing, exploring this beautiful biblical story of uh, the relationship between Boaz and Ruth. And the series is called "The Angels Share How to Waste Your Life." Beautifully, And if you want to know why it's called The Angel Share, can I encourage you to listen to the talk from uh, last time when all will become uh, beautifully clear. And uh, the, the sort of thesis of this little three-part series is that uh, God's grace flows to us and through us best, often through the parts of our lives that we think are a waste of time, the parts of our lives where we feel that there is a wasteland, where we feel maybe disappointed, exhausted, or that we failed. That the, the, the story of the gospel is that God works through the broken bits of our lives more than the raw of our success. And this has got to be really good news for all of us at a time when so many of us are living with insufficient margin and with the continual fear that we're missing out and life is happening somewhere else to someone more beautiful or wealthy than us. So last week, we uh, talked about how to waste our time. Uh, today, I'm going to give you a help with uh, learning how to waste your money, uh, because you all need a lot of help with that. And then uh, in two weeks' time, not next week, because we've got Julian Adams, this amazing prophet with us uh, from South Africa next week, fasten your seatbelts. Uh, but the week after, we will finish this series, and I'm going to talk about how to waste your reputation, your ego. And the aim is that we will get to Christmas together uh, a little less stressed, a little more peaceful and trusting in Jesus, and that we will step into 2020 uh, with greater hope, deeper assurance, and a little more margin in our lives. Does that sound okay? Good. Well, let's do it. So we're going we're gonna to pick up the story actually where we left off last time. The, the, the backdrop is this. For those who need a refresher, um, this woman, Naomi, and her husband uh, from a place called Bethlehem, you may have heard of. And they had left Bethlehem and moved to a country called Moab. They had two sons. Their sons have grown up, big, strong, hunky fellows. They married local Moabites women. Everything's hunky-dory. Everything's going great. And then tragedy strikes. And Naomi's husband and both of the sons die in the same year. So Naomi's left with just her two daughters in law and one of them her name is Ruth says to uh, Naomi her mother-in-law uh, I'm going to come with you and uh, together they go back to Bethlehem because what else do you do uh, you're, you're, you're a penniless heartbroken widow and uh, so, so Naomi goes back to where she's from hoping someone might take pity on her 
And uh, Ruth goes with her. And remember, Ruth's a foreigner. She's got a funny accent as far as the people in Bethlehem are concerned. And she turns up and begins to glean in the fields of this wealthy farmer called Boaz. So we're going to pick up the story. Uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 14, actually, not what it says on the screen. Verse 14 to 19. At mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. Now hold that image. What does that remind you of? Bread and wine vinegar. Someone? Communion. What is it that Jesus is offered on the cross? Wine vinegar. And, 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 and what is it Jesus does? He offers bread. Throughout the story, you're going to find that Boaz is what's called by by theologians a type of Christ. In other words, he's like a, a foreshadowing of Christ. When Ruth sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. Mm. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves. Don't reprimand her. Even, actually, you can just pull some stalks out from the bundles, leave them for her to pick up, and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening, and then she threshed the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Uh, And so on. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. Da-da-da-da. The French banker Guy de Rothschild said this, Everyone has it. No one has enough. Reluctant to discuss it, we think of nothing else. We invest it with our intimate feelings, our rivalries, our triumphs, our frustrations, our ambitions, our resentments. It was a means, it has become an end. He's talking, of course, about money. Today, we are going to explore this gleaning principle in its most literal sense. We're going to think about money. Because it was, of course, through Boaz's financial generosity that he stepped into his ultimate destiny. If Boaz had kept all of his money for himself, we'd never have heard of him. If he had been a super efficient businessman driven by the bottom line, merely trying to maximize profits, he wouldn't have met his wife. He wouldn't have become a dad. He wouldn't have become the great-grandfather of King David, born in Bethlehem. And he wouldn't have fathered the messianic line. You remember Jesus has to, well, Mary and Joseph have to go back to Bethlehem where Jesus is born because it's where they're from. They are from the line of David. This is the city of David, Bethlehem. It was through what Boaz was prepared to give away financially that God's greatest grace flowed to and through his life. And it seems to me that this is a really good time to be thinking about this because it's the most expensive season of the year just coming up. 
The Christmas ads are looming. Debt is spiraling. And so it may be a delicate matter, but it's a pretty good idea to stop and think a little bit together about money, a subject the Bible mentions 2,350 times, and many churches only mention about once a year. Okay, who's seen the John Lewis advert yet? Opinions are divided. Who, who, likes, who, li- who likes the John Lewis advert? The one with the little dragon, yeah? I, I like it. Uh, a bit of, our household is divided over uh, the, the little dragon. Uh, um, anyone know how much it costs to make? Seven million quid. And the funny thing is they've interviewed um, uh, the, the makers of the video and they, and they said, oh, no, it's terribly good value. Terri-. And what that means is you lot, you mugs, are going to spend so much more money at John Lewis because of that stupid dragon that we're going to get our money back. We uh, apparently, in our country, the advertising industry spends 6.2 billion pounds a year trying to persuade us that we are entitled to things that most of us can't afford. And I want to say something very clearly right at the start of this talk, and it is this. There will be people in this room who are in significant debt. I'm not talking about student loans, not necessarily talking about mortgages, but the kind of debt that is just draining all the energy and the life out of you. And if that is your situation, especially with Christmas looming, this is a really important night. And the Lord has brought you here for me to say to you, it's important to get free from your debt. And it is possible to get free from your debt, but it will be difficult. That might not sound very spiritual, but I want to suggest it's one of the most spiritual things anyone could say to you this evening. Because 2020 could be the year that you get free. Imagine that. Or it could be the year that everything gets worse and you drag the chains of that debt around with you. If you're in significant debt, I want to urge you to talk to somebody uh, who can help you. And if you talk to Jazz here, who's leading the meeting... We know really good people, this is what they do, who help people all the time get free from debt. And by the way, the surveys say that men find it even harder to fess up about debt than women. In fact, many husbands don't even tell their wives when they're in debt. I was just reading about that yesterday. If you are in debt, you can ignore most of the rest of this talk and just play Candy Crush Saga now uh, And uh, uh, because I don't want to put anything heavy on you. I don't want to challenge you in any other way. That's enough of a challenge. Address it and let's make a plan and let's help you get free because that's what the good news of Jesus could look like for you uh, in 2020. Um, I also just wanted to say to you that... Um, This talk is not a fundraising drive by the church. We've deliberately already done the offering. (laughs) If if this was like a a sneaky way of trying to get money out of you, we'd have done the offering after the talk, okay? Uh, This is uh, trying to just bring some discipleship from the scriptures into uh, an area that is vulnerable and yet incredibly important in all of our lives, And also, this isn't a talk that's just going to tell you you've got to give more and more and more away. It's about not just how do you give well, but how are you going to live well? How are you going to handle money so that you can live with joy and sacrifice and celebration and generosity and color? 
how do we handle money well? And uh, if you've been around Emmaus for any length of time, you'll know that one of my favorite bits of teaching on this uh, is 250 years old. And it's a beautiful sermon from good old John Wesley entitled, The Use of Money. And although it's in Old English, I think it's a great thing to read. And if you just Google John Wesley, Use of Money, you will get the full sermon. But what's really cool about this sermon is that although obviously he was living centuries before Instagram and Twitter and whatever, um, you can narrow his sermon down to just this super, super catchy little meme. And it goes like this. John Wesley's teaching on money is this. Gain all you can. Save all you can. Give all you can. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. I want to think about those three with you because I think there is such wisdom in this and I believe it is deeply uh, biblical. So first of all, let's think about gaining money. Often um, some kinds of Christians uh, think that the last thing God ever wants is anyone to have any money. And they're wrong. Uh, One of the ways God wants to bless many people is through money. Um, Some of you may remember May the 2nd, 2016, Leicester City, the Foxes, raised the trophy. They had won the premiership against all odds. At the start of that particular football season, the odds, the literal odds of them winning uh, the premiership was 5,000 to 1 against. They'd never won it in their history before. Bottom of the league. And uh, it was often described as one of the biggest sporting upsets in history. Uh, it cost the bookies 25 million pounds. They've, made, they've changed their policies so they can never again offer 5,000 to 1 odds on anything. And, and the single biggest winner uh, on, on that is an anonymous uh, better who uh, placed a bet for 75 pounds just two weeks into the season when the odds were still 1,500 to 1 against. And therefore, on the 2nd of May 2016, that one person, no one knows who it is, pocketed £112,500 from a £75, I was going to say investment, but let's just call it a flutter, shall we? Now, the only thing we know about this lucky individual is that is where they placed their bet. They placed their bet in a William Hill on the high street in a place called Guildford. If it was you, congratulations, Uh, and maybe we'll pass the offering bucket around later. We make our money and we waste our money in such peculiar ways, don't we? Sometimes we think, this is great use of my money, and it turns into a complete and utter waste. Um, Most of you are too young to know this, but back in 1975, there was a war on for who would develop the first kind of like authentic video player and uh, and people like my mother-in-law went out and bought a thing called a Betamax and it had the wrong shaped videos it wasn't VHS bad use of money fast forward a little bit and we're in the year 2009 and Barnes and Noble decide to come up with an e-reader called a Nook anyone who bought a Nook instead of a Kindle Bad use of money. Fast forward to 2015, and I don't know if anyone here decided to part with a cool thousand pounds to buy Google glasses. (laughs) 
And then there are other times in our lives when what we think might be the biggest waste of money turns into one of the best uses imaginable. I suspect the person who placed that 75-pound bet spitting distance from where we are now feels a bit like that. Boaz had gained a lot of money. He was successful. He had employees. He was a rich landowner. What's more, he was growing uh, 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 grain, making grain in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem, the Hebrew Bethlehem, literally means house of bread. So now this is important. So he lives in a place that is renowned, named after its bread, and he is in the business of making the basic ingredient of bread. This is good business. This is boomtown stuff that Boaz is doing. Now, some of you may say, hang on, Pete, doesn't the Bible say that money is the root of all evil? It's often quoted but that's a misquote you probably know actually 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 says this the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil so it's not the acquisition that is wrong it is the attitude that can be wrong if you are profoundly driven by a desire for more money you've opened your life to the root of all evil Gollum, my precious. Why do we love that character? Because we all relate to it. We know there are things. If I touch them too much, if I focus on them too much, they will start to take me over. There isn't a single person in this room, I suspect, who hasn't sometimes had a bit of a my precious relationship with some material thing. The love of money is a root of all evil. Don't worship it. Don't make it your primary focus. But do earn it. Do steward it. It's not wrong to have it. So let's try a little experiment. Um, is there anyone in the room who could spare me a fiver or a tenner? Today, got, you, got, you got some cash on you and could spare a fiver or a tenner. Anyone? Ellis, good lad. Ah, oh, nice tenor. Excellent. By the way, don't you like the new plasticky money? Anyone been to America recently? It's horrible. They still... Oh, we have a lot of American listeners. Hello, Americans. Your money is dirty and unhygienic. <laughs> ours, is, ours isn't worth very much, but at least it feels nice. Got a tenor here. Uh, who, anyone here struggling a little bit for money and you, you need a bit of... Seriously, you just need, you could do with some cash and, you know, you need a bit of a breakthrough in your life. Tenor might not sort it, but tenor might help. Who, need, who needs the tenor? It's like, not, doesn't just want, we all want the tenor, except LS is the only one who doesn't want it. Uh, anyone, just be honest, who, who needs this right now? Yeah, great. Now, Steve. Beautiful. Now, it's so simple, isn't it? Because that is what, Money is designed to do. Ellis has worked hard at CSW, earning that money, making sure he hasn't spent it all on something else. It's there in his wallet. 
and he can now do stuff with it. And what money is there for is to move, to flow. It, it, the, the word currency that we use for money, remember, is also used for electricity. You have an electric current. You have a current in a river. It's from the Latin word carere. It means to flow. Money is not designed to sit statically because when that happens, it just kind of goes stagnant. Money is designed to flow between people. It's about relationships. It's about thriving. It's about bounty. It's about blessing other people. God blesses us with stuff so that we can bless others with stuff. If you don't gain money, you ain't going to be able to give money away. So gain all you can. Now the next bit of Wesleyan advice for us this evening on how to steward our money well is save all you can. Boaz is here supervising the threshing personally. He's not just kind of lounging by the swimming pool while everyone does the hard work. There is something about Boaz that is clearly careful with his resources. He is a generous man, but he's also shrewd. A little bit later, 500 years later, in fact, Jesus told a parable about money. And he said, someone, some people, you know, one servant gets this much, and then another one gets slightly more, another one gets even more. And, and then he talks about what they did with their money. And the, 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 the whole moral of the parable of the talents, as it's called, is when God gives you money, steward it well. Now, it might well apply to other kinds of gifts, but Jesus primarily was talking about money. That was his illustration. And so there is something good about uh, uh, investing our money and making it grow as long as it's ethical. What does it mean to save money? Well, it might be if you've got lots of money that you're carefully monitoring and managing a portfolio of shares. But maybe for a few more of us here, it might just mean cutting back on takeaways. It might mean cancelling Netflix. I'll just let that hang for a little while. (laughs) It might mean, as some friends of mine did this summer, deciding we're not going to go on a holiday because we really have to prioritize paying off our credit card bill. And they've got two young kids, and they just hyped their kids about not going on holiday. They're like, it's going to be so cool. We're, we're, going, we're going to go to the beach for free, and, 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 and we'll have an ice cream one day. And the kids are like, oh, we're going to have an ice cream. Like, See, when they're little, you can just manipulate them. It's brilliant. <laughs> I know in my own life, I often waste money in the wrong way, not in the right way. Um, One of the standing jokes in our household, a story that I'm often mocked with, relates to a day when, um, with great magnanimity, I gathered Sammy and my two sons, and I said, tonight we are going to go out for a meal. And and, and we went out for a meal, and um, I said, have anything you want on the menu. And everyone's tucking and going, this is great, Dad. And then the the waiter came with the the menu, so, you know, that cheeky thing they do, do you want dessert? And uh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's have dessert. And, 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 and I'm like, any dessert you want. You know, br- br- bring me wild boar. Bring me, bring me lark's tongues. Bring me dancing girls. You know, I was just like, no. And, um, and, and, and eventually my dear wife leant across to me. She said, Pete, can we actually afford this? And suddenly, I just had this horrific realization 
that we couldn't. And what happened was, on my phone, I have that great old classic game, Monopoly. And sometimes, if I've got a spare 20 minutes, I think, oh, I have a sneaky game of Monopoly. And I'd won at Monopoly, like houses and hotels and everything that morning. I'd just been kind of feeling rich all day. <laughs> and, and, and that air of richness had led me to take... And I had to pay actual money. They wouldn't take Monopoly money at this particular place. I can be so foolish with money. I've had to learn in my own life because my temptations always say, well, the problem is I don't have enough money. I'm not sure if anyone ever thinks they have enough. But I've had to come to terms with the fact that I may never have enough money, but I can plan enough with my money. That I need to become far more intentional and careful in my use of money. That's part of saving it. it there are these, it's funny, the, the words that I want to use at this moment all sound old-fashioned. Maybe that's significant. Maybe our consumer culture has learned to mock words like thrift and frugality. You know, I believe one of the most radical and prophetic things you can do in a consumer culture is say, I have enough. Or, I'm going to live simply. Remember that old quote, we must learn to live simply that others may simply live. I've had to learn to do that. So proud of... Um, our son Danny at the moment, he's, he would normally be in this service and he's not because as he's doing almost all the time at the moment, he seems to be having to work at, at the pub where he's a waiter and um, he actually has been working two jobs uh, and it, he, he, it's just exhausting him but he's working that hard because he's saving his money, he's gaining all he can and he's saving all he can because he is wanting to go and do a, a discipleship surfing course with Youth with a Mission in Australia in January and he's got to raise thousands and he's on minimum wage and you have no idea how, like, how long you have to work just to get a little bit of money and he just got his pay slip and he and I sat down and looked at it together and he's like what is this national insurance you know like what like how many hours did I have to work? who is this why are they taking my money away from me you know and and then I I said to him and and Danny you know um have you thought about your giving and he's like dad I'm trying to save I'm like yeah but he said, Dad, I'll really give £10 a month to Emmaus. And I said, I know, and that was really generous before you started earning. <laughs> and I had to say, like, Danny, honestly, like, give. And God will give it back to you. And all the surveys show that the most generous philanthropists in this nation started when they were at Danny's stage. They started young. They started when it wasn't very much. And, 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 and it's part of my responsibility as dad to disciple him in, in gaining money and in saving money so that he can give money. One final thing on the, on, on the saving piece before we do the final bit, the giving piece, is this. Um, I said last week that gleaning was the earliest form of social welfare provision in the world. Uh, it was a, a wealth redistribution. It was a way of providing for the poor. I said last week that the Torah laid down that you, you shouldn't um, 
a harvest right to the corners of your field. You shouldn't beat your olive trees more than once. There were some olives left on the branches, and you shouldn't take all the grapes off your vine so that uh, the poor, so that widows and orphans like Ruth Naomi here could come and not starve. This was an early, the earliest social welfare system in the world. Now, one of the ways and one of the main ways that we provide for the poor in this nation, the NHS, free schools, um, you know, all sorts of provision for the poor, is through our taxation system. And we can get into some big debate about whether it's right or wrong, the government does it, and actually there's all sorts of things that many non-government organizations, including this church, do, but the, the, the biggest provision uh, for the poor is that. And therefore, as important as Christians, we pay our taxes. Because it's how we provide for the poor. It's one of the ways we do what Boaz did. And, and if you say to me, well, I don't like the way that the government uses my taxes, well, on December the 12th, you're going to have an opportunity to vote. Think about it. Address it. Ask questions about it. But whether it's, oh, yeah, I'll just take cash in hand for that job. Thank you very much. In the back pocket. No one needs to know about it. Or whether it's offshore banking in tax havens, this is not stuff for Christians to be doing. So get, get all you can, save all you can. Finally, Wesley says, and then once you've got money and you've saved money, you're going to be able to give money. You're going to be able to live generously. The greatest joy of gaining money and saving money is to be able to give it away to bless others. Boaz gave generously beyond the minimum that he had to give. And that simple set of choices means that today billions of people are still being blessed by his generosity over those few days with Ruth. This isn't just about giving money to the church. That's a good thing to do. It's about an attitude of generosity in all of life. I often say I meet lots of 21-year-olds who are like, I want to bless the nations, and they won't buy a round of drinks at the bar. I'm like, how does that work? When does blessing the nation start if you can't even buy a few drinks at the bar? Well, I haven't got any money. Well, how are you going to bless the nations then? People are going to give me money to do it. Interesting. It's about a generous attitude in life. Having the reserves perhaps to deal with unexpected emergencies. Providing for our kids. My friend Ken Costa says, giving belongs not to the suburbs of Christianity, but to the very center of our spiritual lives. Giving is spirituality made real. What might it look like this Christmas to give a little less stuff to the people we love and a little more presence, time, listening, thoughtfulness, love? It might actually be more costly. I was really challenged about this uh, three weeks ago, I think it was. We had, you may remember, Chris and Craig Westhoff with us. And after the morning services, I took them for lunch just very near here. And uh, Craig, you, you remember, he's got this deep gravelly voice and he's covered in tattoos. And um, he was really unwell, actually. He had a high temperature. He was very unwell. Uh, and um, we were sitting down waiting for our food to be delivered. And he had gone to, the, to the, uh, the, the toilets, which were upstairs in that particular restaurant. 
And I, he was taking a long time. I thought, oh, maybe he's keeled over. Maybe he's fainted. I hope he's all right. And suddenly I heard his big booming laugh. And I looked up and I saw him actually, literally, physically hugging our waiter. And like, I, he came down and said, Craig, we're English. We, we barely talk to our waiters. We, you know, we, we, we don't hug them. What on earth were you doing? And he said, oh, he's a, he's a, great, he's a great dude. He's a great dude. I said, you know, I'm sure we don't normally hug our waiters. <laughs> and, and, and I said, actually, Craig, how on earth did you get to know him so quickly? Uh, normally, it's 10 years into marriage before we hug one another. And, um, <laughs> and uh, he said to me, oh, well, I just came out of the bathroom, and uh, I saw he had tattoos. I said, hey, nice tats, man. And, and he said, my tats were nice, too. And I pulled up my sleeve, and I showed him. He's got one that's a whole Bible verse on his arm. It feels like cheating, actually. He went, read that, man. And so the guy's reading me the Bible, and then... Um, I said, what do you make of that? And the guy said, oh, it's about Jesus, right? And I said, yeah, uh, what do you think of Jesus? And he said, oh, I'm starting to think about Jesus at the moment because life's quite hard. And so then he gave him a hug. And then at the end of the meal, he's, he's writing down, he, he says to me, give me the deeds of the evening service so I can invite him along to this. And um, so he wrote it down on a napkin. He said, I'm just going to go and invite him. So he goes up, he comes out a little bit later, and he says, um, he says he can't come to the evening service because he's working a late shift. But the cool news is, I, when I heard he couldn't come to church, I said to him, hey, man, uh, could we just, could, could, could we stay in touch? Like, can I get your details? I said, i tell you all it is. He, I said to him, I just want to hear your story. I want to hear your story, man. He said, this is what the guy said. He looked, got really serious. A waiter just down the way here. He got really serious, and he said, that's the whole effing problem. And he didn't actually say effing, I'm just tidying up for you people because you look delicate. <laughs> he said, that's the whole effing problem. Nobody wants to hear my story. Nobody is interested in my life. Like the coolest guy you could imagine. And that's what's actually going on inside him. And so Craig said, I want to hear your story. I'm interested in your life. That was Sunday three weeks ago. On Monday they had a phone conversation, and that waiter gave his life to Jesus Christ. And Craig has been talking to him almost every day since and discipling him, but he hasn't quite made it. He'll be here soon at a church meeting. What an amazing journey. And it, see, that wasn't about giving money. That was about giving something perhaps more costly. When you're running a temperature, you're feeding unwell, you're in a foreign country, he gave time. He gave presence. He listened. He became radically available. The only money that exchanged hands was I felt unduly pressured to have to give a big tip at the end of the uh, meal. But apart from that, I mean, that's, you know, I just want to make you clear that, you know, I played a part in the whole process. So, um, <laughs> so even if you're here thinking, you know, I'm at a stage right now where I'm not gaining enough or saving enough to be able to give as much as I would like, we can all live more generously, like Boaz. And so we're going to finish with the most, well, one of the greatest biblical stories about how God's grace flows through the apparent financial waste of um, resources. And this is Mark chapter 14. 
You may want to just grab it. It's not coming up on the screens. Mark chapter 14. It's the story of uh, Jesus being anointed at Bethany by Mary. And we're just going to read verses 3 to 9. I want you to listen to the way the word waste is used in this story. While he was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Why this waste? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you won't always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of me. This perfume nard came from the Himalayas. Imagine how long it took to get it from India and Nepal to Israel 2,000 years ago. It was valued, we're told, at one year's wages. And these perfumes were burial spices. You saved it up for your own funeral because it was customary to, to, to put perfume on the body. So if you like, this was Mary's pension scheme. It was her provision for the end of her life. And she comes and she empties her pension scheme. She pours out what she has on Jesus in such a way that they said, what a waste. We could have done something strategic and tactical with it. We could have fought injustice with it. Oh, that sounds really holy, doesn't it? Isn't it extraordinary to think that when Jesus took the bread, as we're about to take the bread, and he held it up and said, this is my body broken for you, he smelt still of the perfume. Isn't it mad to think that when he hung dying on that cross, he still smelt of this perfume? Isn't it incredible that she, without presumably knowing that he was about to die, took her own burial spices and poured them over him like it was some prophetic moment? This was not a waste. This was the most precious way she could possibly have spent her life savings. She had gained a lot of money, Mary, to be able to have a year's worth put by, right? I mean, who here would like to have a year's worth of wages tucked away in your back pocket? She saved hard, and now she just breaks it all out and gives it all away to Jesus in this way. It wasn't a waste at all. It was the most worthwhile act of worship. Both of the stories we've looked at this evening, Boaz and Mary, point us to the cross of Christ. They point us to the greatest waste in human history when the God of the cosmos laid down his life and died. When the blood of Christ soaked into the dust. The greatest tragedy, the greatest, most pointless, most desperate moment in human history 
that of course became the most beautiful, most powerful, most wonderful. The moment that we're going to celebrate now isn't just the death, the waste of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ, for he is here with us by his Spirit. It wasn't just Mary's anointing with the burial spices that predicted this moment. It was also in Boaz because, as we said right at the start, he took bread and gave it to Ruth with wine vinegar. And so here we have a bridegroom giving a bride bread and wine. Here we have an act in Boaz of extraordinary sacrificial kindness and grace to a penniless foreigner who becomes his bride. And we believe as Christians that we are the bride of Christ, though we are Gentiles, though we were far away, though our hearts were broken, though we were weak and vulnerable, had nothing going for us. He saw us and he poured out and gave everything he had to us just like Boaz giving bread and wine. And through the union of Boaz and Ruth, through the coming together of bride and groom, so a new line is born that brings redemption, blessing to the ends of the earth. And so when Jesus stood up and took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you, He wasn't just saying, my physical body is about to get broken on the cross. He was also saying, my name is Jesus, and I am from the house of bread. I was born in the house of bread. That's why earlier in his life, he said, I am the bread of life. It's kind of his background. To be from the house of David is to be from the house of bread. And so he is saying, when I die on the cross, the house of bread is going to die. The line of David is going to die. I haven't got any uh, physical children. It's the end of the line for the line that began with Boaz. But when I rise again, a new house of bread, a new line will begin with each one of you. You are going to start the new divinic line, the new line of Boaz and Ruth, the new line of uh, the new Israel. And so as we take the bread together, We don't just look back at Bethlehem and Ruth and Boaz and David and Jesus. We look forward to the day when the bread of Jesus will be broken in all the earth and everyone will experience the resurrection and the reality of Jesus Christ and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's what we're doing now. And so this is a meal for those who feel unworthy, undeserving, vulnerable, and weak. And it may be that the Lord is challenging you and that you can respond even in communion now to this challenge. Perhaps it's a challenge to, remember I said at the start, just deal with some debt. And so you're going to come and say, God, I'm in debt and I feel ashamed. And I want to ask that by the power of your death and resurrection, you would set me free. Help me. Or it may be that the Lord's been speaking to you today about becoming more intentional and careful with how you handle your money, that you might be able to save more. And you're going to need some grace for that. Or it may be that he is calling you to live more generously and sacrificially with your money, 
with your time and with your presence, to sow your resources into the blessing of others, that ultimately we can give to others, our neighbors and the nations, because he first gave to us. So come and receive from Jesus. And in receiving from him, you yourself will be blessed that you might bless others. Amen.